Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we're going to be talking to Thaddeus Segura, who is our VP of uh, the uh, data uh, business unit here at Williot. Um, we try and balance um, non-Williot stuff with Williot stuff, but with Thaddeus uh, joining us, he has an amazing background in retail, 10 years at Walmart, super smart guy. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation. It's a real eye-opener in terms of uh, um, the application of ambient IoT to, to retail. We talk about some of the problems that exist that can be solved, the approach to solving it. And um, uh, I, I certainly learn something every time I speak to Thaddeus. Um, I, we've been off the air for a while. I've been taking a bit of a break. Uh, we uh, try and uh, make sure that we're not just putting out episodes because uh, we, we have to, but we've got uh, good guests. And Thaddeus is certainly um, one of those. And I thought it'd be fun uh, to do this interview in front of something we call the Wall of Williot, uh, which uh, is something that our tech marketing team have been working on. So I wanted to show it off and Basically, what you're seeing is um, a thousand ambient IoT sensors uh, behind me. Uh, each one, uh, when it broadcasts, you will see a little wavelet, and that those colors are indicative of temperature. So over my left shoulder, then you'll see some patches of, uh, of orange because there's a space heater that's uh, blasting hot air at that, and... Um, so uh, you can't see radio waves, but if you could, this is kind of something that, uh, that you might see. So I hope it's not too distracting, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Thaddeus. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. Thaddeus, welcome to the Mr. Beacon Podcast. It's, it's great to have you uh, on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Well, you have a really interesting job. We don't often uh, interview people that work at Willyot. We've certainly we've done it, and, and we'll probably do it a little more often as, as the stuff we're doing gets more and more interesting. Um, but I'm really uh, keen to uh, talk with you because you have seen us from the customer side. You used to work at Walmart. Uh, and now you're doing this job, which uh, is probably a job that many people looking at Williot th would think didn't exist. You're the 
the data guy, your VP of our group that's doing analytics, that is involved in every major project that we do and is taking raw data and turning it into insights and actions. And a lot of people probably look at Williot and think that we're this uh, Ambient IoT silicon company, and we are. Uh, but uh, we decided uh, pretty early on to focus on trying to add value to essentially commoditize that lower layer and, and make our, our living in the area that you operate in. So um, I, I, there's lots that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you a bit about um, the, you know, what you're seeing in terms of the use cases, the, um, how what you're doing now differs from the kind of data analysis that was possible with RFID. Uh, I want to pick your brains about how your team's approaching this um, and you know what kind of things they're doing, what they're not doing. But before we get into that, um, you came from Walmart. You saw a bunch of problems that are very, you know, they're immensely capable, world-class leader. What, what's your perspective on the problems that are ripe for solving with ambient IoT? What are the business problems? Yeah, I think I can talk generally about some of the problems that are facing retail and yeah. maybe expand a little bit beyond that. But one of the things I saw over the, my decade with Walmart is this shift in the granularity of data you need to be able to operate and be competitive. So it used to be good enough to know whether or not you had you know, something in the building. And I always use Sriracha as an example because I, I eat a lot of Sriracha and it can be hard to find these days. Um, but in the past, it was good enough just to know if you had Sriracha there and you had a shelf and you could fit a whole bunch of Sriracha on it and you just had to keep it there and keep it full so that when someone showed up, they could buy some. You could have a margin of error of you know, 12 or 24 bottles and it really didn't matter. Today, that's not the case. Today, the exact number you believe you have is plugged into a system and that's your available to sell inventory. And people can see it on the website before they drive to the store. And Instacart is coming by and, and predicting whether or not they can fill the order. And it's such a data-driven ecosystem now with omni-channel retail that it's no longer a world in which you can have a, a margin of error plus or minus 12. You really have to have an exact match. And retailers are really bad at that. And it has been such a rapid shift from the world in which we operated to the world in which we're at now that everyone's looking for technologies to try to solve that problem. And I think that that's not just true in retail, but that's true everywhere. Like the amount of granularity you needed before and the margin of errors you could operate at before were just completely different than what they're at now. Because everything is a computer and automated, it's true data. It's not these, these fuzzy things and humans can correct. So you don't have a, someone in the store like making a substitution in the moment. Sriracha's out of stock, so I'll get chili. You're picking something and then it's being driven by data into another system. And so things really have to be perfect these days and people are looking for technologies to solve those problems. So it's like the COVID crisis just accelerated the buy online, pick up in store, buy online, have it uh, delivered. And that's not what the original systems were built for, right? No. And, and they're complex legacy systems. These are not like simple machines. These have been built over 50 years and were never intended for this kind of scale or this kind of use. And so that's why some retailers like Amazon have like an inherent advantage because they came up and, and they built these things for scratch from scratch for scale, where other people have like a fundamentally different approach and uh, something they really have to like get through and solve on top of old legacy systems that are in many cases too ingrained to completely rebuild from scratch. So why can't everyone just look at what Amazon is doing and do the same thing? 
It's tough. Um, there are also different pieces of competitive advantage there. Like, you know, one thing that I always, people ask why I was still at Walmart after 10 years. And the truth is when you get into the middle of the country, they have a great foothold. You know, something like Amazon makes a lot of sense when you're on the coast, when you drive up and down the street and there's a house every 50 feet or 20 feet or five mm-hmm. feet in a, in a cul-de-sac. But when you get out into rural Nebraska or South Dakota and the houses are 100 acres apart, suddenly it doesn't make sense to have two-hour delivery. And so, you know, this hub-and-spoke model, this omni-channel model, or even having physical stores, it still makes a lot of sense in everywhere other than the coasts. And so I don't think it's just a, a one-or-the-other model. It, it's not just pure online, which is why you see Amazon opening brick-and-mortar stores, and it's not just brick-and-mortar stores, which is why I, I truly believe that omni-channel is the solution if you want to scale to solve the problem for the whole world and not just the metropolitan areas. Yeah, it seems like you can't just build a parallel infrastructure of distribution centers that are run by robots because then you end up having all of that overhead and you have the overhead of your brick and mortar stores and the people in them. And uh, it's just, uh, that's a road to ruin there in terms of the um, economics. And you've got to capitalize on this. uh, I mean, uh, Walmart especially, but so many retailers have that proximity, don't they, to... uh, to the people that they're they're serving, um, so you know we we're focusing more and more on ambient IoT on this podcast. Uh, everything being connected, and I mean one of the things I love about it is there's just so many things that you can do. If you take, you know, we've been if we look at the connection between things and the cloud, we've been drinking through a one of those tiny cocktail straws where you really have to, there's a really small amount of throughput and only uh, um, so much can get through. But now when everything can be connected, you can do anything. But the question is, where do you start? What are the use cases that make sense given where the technology is today? Um, and that's going to change. But you know, what's your view? You've been at Williot for a while now. And so you're seeing both sides of it. What, are, what do you think the use cases are that really make sense to apply ambient IoT technology to today? Yeah, so I think, um, I just wanna make a comment of what you said because when I was interviewing for this role, that stuck out as the single biggest risk and the thing that scared me the most is the solution space is so unconstrained. Like as a product manager, I actually liked thinking inside the box because my first job was defining the box. Yeah. And once I had those constraints, like it became easy. Here, the technology is so flexible, right? Like we have temperature and location, but we can do humidity and light and gas sensing and all these things that we're experimenting with. And it's like, where do you go and what do you try to solve that you don't fall into that innovator's dilemma where you like pigeonhole yourself in one place, but you can still keep going. And so I have to think about it in terms of different horizons and like different periods of time. Um, But right now, and this might be my bias speaking, I think there are a lot of uh, pieces of low hanging fruit in retail that we can go after and in supply chains. And so some things we've been able to do that we've gotten a ton of traction on, uh, there's three big buckets I'm looking at. The first is inventory accuracy. The second is food safety. And the third is what I call it an end-to-end X-ray. Um, and I can go into any of these in depth, but at a high level, like inventory accuracy is really like tracking and understanding where things are at in real time. We have an advantage because we have this very low cost, low touch infrastructure. We can put it anywhere, we can deploy it mobily, we can run it on batteries. And so there's so much flexibility that we can see things that other technologies can't with much lower touch. 
With food safety, because we can inherently measure temperature throughout the whole life cycle, we can track, track providence back to a supplier or a grower. We can isolate down to you know single cases, whether or not something was at risk for a food outbreak. Um, so you don't have to throw away all of your food if there was potentially you know a salmonella and you have 10,000 pounds of spinach, but only uh, one case was potentially at risk. And then finally, you know, this end-to-end x-ray is an idea that came out because we have matured in how we're approaching data. But in the beginning, we kind of just shoved stuff out there and then dug into the data and saw what we saw. And something that was really interesting is it's, it's kind of like going to a doctor when you have pain. You don't know what's wrong or what's broken inside, but you have no way to see. And now we can scan the whole thing and understand like what's going on inside and be able to diagnose this. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different things, but those are the three buckets that I'm working on right now. That's awesome. I, I love any list that has three things in it, and those are just very powerful um, use cases. But I want to kind of challenge the, the real-time uh, inventory piece because, you know, I love to think in metaphors, and I feel like uh, what we've got is this um, high-definition color capability. We talk about our tags as pixels, and so maybe the metaphor is, is apt. Um, but I remember, you know, back in the early days uh, of personal computers, people were like, I, I don't need a graphics screen. I can be fine with black and white. Why do I need color? Why do I need graphics? That's just to play games. And so, you know, if the CFO of a retailer is looking at that and saying, oh, you want real time? Well, you know, I'm sure that's going to be very impressive. But do we really need real time? Why, why do I need real time inventory? You need it. Oh, you need it very badly. Okay. So, you know, I'm sure you've ordered things online in the past and you place your Instacart order and then you brace for it. Like how many texts am I going to get? How many substitutions? How many things are going to be unfilled today? And it's a problem everyone's having. The fact that you were able to place that order is indicative that some system somewhere had a critical threshold of confidence that that item was in stock. And in stock, above and beyond some level of safety stock, that you were going to get that item. Otherwise, they wouldn't have shown it to you. So it passed all these logical tests, and you were able to order it, and you gave them your money. And then still 10% of the time, they can't find it, and they give you your money back on the order of like tens of billions of dollars a year across all of retail. It is this massive problem. And the thing is that so often the item's in the store. Their data was right, but it wasn't in the one location where you thought it could have been. It's in a 200,000 square foot box or a 50,000 square foot box. And you're trying to send a person to a known location, but they can't actually track it down because it's still on a pallet in the back room because three people called in last night and all the freight didn't get stocked. Or it's on a display because it's prime time. We're going into Valentine's Day and you ordered Valentine's candy for your partner and they went to the aisle, but it's actually on 20 displays all across the, the front of the checkouts. And so that seems so intuitive when you're a shopper, like you would have found that. But these people are being measured on efficiency and they're trying to find things so quickly that it's not good enough just to know that it's in the box. You need to know where it's at within that box and you need to know where it's at within that box in real time. And that is a 10 digit problem in terms of revenue for just American retailers right now. And so I I don't think it's science fiction. I don't think we're trying to sell people a solution they don't need. I think there's a very tangible, measurable, quantified need that our, our technology solves today. 
I mean, I think you've done an excellent job of answering that question, but I think it's still hard for people to get their head around why is this so challenging? I mean, it, it's, um, you know, uh, how, wh why can't you find something, you know, you, you have all this technology, you're already using RFID, maybe, you're, you're certainly scanning QR codes. And so why can't you find the product in, in there? And what are the implications of not being able to find it? I mean, certainly disappointing someone with an online order is, is, is one of them. But I think it's worth just dwelling a little bit more on what the reality is for the people that are running. I mean, it seems like such a simple thing. The product comes in the back, you put it on the shelves, and you sell it. But uh, what, so what's the big deal? Why can't very, you know, world-class companies, excellent companies do better at doing that. I think if you had, if everything was smooth and everything ran within like the expected bands, it wouldn't work that way. But I think that the most tangible way to characterize the problem is thinking about like labor. And the truth is like, it's become really hard to fill these roles, not just the stalker roles, but also the truck driver roles. Uh, the, the longshoremen that unload the shipping containers off the boat. So if you're at 60% staffed when you're unloading the boat at the dock in Oakland, and then the train isn't staffed, so it doesn't actually get on the train at the right time. Uh, and then you have to call people in. So everything that was, was blocked and you had this uh, bottleneck, suddenly it's cleared and all this freight flows through at once. And so the store doesn't just get the 8,000 cases they were scheduled to get that night with consistent demand. They get 16,000 cases and they also have their own call-ins. And so you run into these problems where you don't have these, this consistency of flow throughout the supply chain and everything's become so lean because we were all about just in time for so many years. And then suddenly something happened via COVID that completely broke the entire system. And I don't think we've recovered. And so you have these things where these things come through, like you'll get all this freight in a single night and it may take a store a week to get back on process because they were so used to operating with such a small margin of error that a slight deviation causes this cascade and this chain effect that prevents the stuff from getting into the right place. And in some cases, there are automatic systems that will detect, let's say, a dip in sales and order more merchandise. So if you're a store with 300 pallets of unworked merchandise in the back and the system says, we're losing sales, let's send more, well, you're compounding the problem. And it just becomes a cycle that you can't escape. And it's really more common than people than people think. Like there's a lot of time the freight you're ordering is, is in the store and it's just waiting to be stocked. No, I think any of us who've shopped, which is almost everyone, have experienced the uh, frustration of, of not being able to get what they want. And we're kind of, we expect, we expect better. Um, so, um, and it, it makes sense. Let's just spend a bit more time on that second category, the food safety thing, because I think that's super interesting and it's important to everyone um uh as well um you know what 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 is the current state of play and what's the opportunity to um because we've got regulations right there's um we're supposed to be able to do traceability we've had other guests who've talked about uh having to respond to the regulation but sort of where are we now what's kind of best practice and what do you think the opportunity is there to improve food safety with ambient iot yeah so i i in terms of food safety in this whole category, I have three sub points uh, and they are precious uh, case tracking compliance and, and what I call providence. 
And so within freshness, you know, this one isn't food safety from a compliance perspective, but freshness matters. Like a good strawberry and a bad strawberry is an experience. It's not just like slightly worse. It's just fundamentally different. Like I can like imagine a great grape and like that's like worthwhile and a bad grape is just miserable. Like there's not, not really an in-between, right? Um, and so freshness really matters. And especially now that not everyone's selecting their own fruit. So often if I'm ordering through Instacart or some fulfillment service, I'm not selecting. So it's no longer okay that they just have this distribution that I'm picking from the best. It has to be that the whole distribution is more uniform and it's all the best because someone else is picking my fruit for me. And so I do think that there's an impetus and, and some stress on retailers to improve the quality of all their fruit because consumer selection behavior is changing and will continue to accelerate as people move to you know, crowdsource or third-party fulfillment systems. So there's so much we can do around freshness, even with just the sensors we have today. So just with dwell time and temperature tracking, you can do so much with existing TTI models where you can plug these in as inputs and understand like what quality your grapes may have. And not at the truckload, not at the bushel load, but at the individual case, or even if it mattered to you at the individual bag. Like we could track the freshness of a single banana if we wanted to. I don't know if it'd be worthwhile to put a tag on a banana, but we could if we wanted. So that's the first one. The second- And threat, you said TTI, what was TTI? Uh, time temperature integration. Okay. So there are existing models that take into account things like uh, dwell time since you uh, harvested the fruit, uh, the temperature that it was at, because if you're a banana and you spend 10 minutes at 60 degrees, that may be okay. If you spend one minute at 120, uh, that's probably pretty bad. And so these models take into account over time like how much exposure to different bands of temperature have an impact on accelerating the ripeness or even uh, contaminating the fruit. If you think about like uh, meat, uh, temperature outside of a certain band can lead to major bacteria growth. So there are existing models. And there are more complex models that take into account things like humidity, which is why some of the sensors we'll put out at the end of this year and into next year will be so critical um, for these models because we'll add another key uh, dimension for these existing models that retailers will be able to use. Very cool. So I interrupted you. You were, I think, just wrapping up point one. Uh... Yeah. So the second's around case tracking. And as I understand it, there's compliance coming out in both the states and in the EU around the ability to track cases. So we have FISMA compliance in the states, we have digital passport in the EU, and we need to be able to show where these things were at at a given time and show consistent chain of custody all the way through. And with a simple UPC or a simple SKU, there's shortcomings. If you have a whole pallet of bananas, it's all 4011. It's one UPC and it all looks the same. But the compliance will dictate that you can differentiate between those 16 or 18 cases that are on that single pallet and understand if they were picked at a different date or came from a different place. And people will need technology to disambiguate those. And they'll be looking for, for new technologies because they'll have to upgrade. And I think we make a ton of sense. And just by meeting that food safety compliance requirement, you unlock all the other benefits of the technology. Mm -hmm. Very good. And you said FISMA. What does that What's that? I wish I knew the acronym, but it's... it's I, I, go ahead. I think, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's Food Safety Modernization Act. But, uh, but anyway, it's the law, right? Yes, it's a law, federal law in the United States, yes. Very good, very good. And there's a third point? Third one's around providence, which is that a lot of people make claims around grass-fed or organic. And I think that 
in five years, it'll be table stakes that you'll have to be able to prove those claims. You know, so many things are being audited and finding out that this coconut oil contains 0% coconut, uh, or all these claims that these manufacturers have made aren't actually true. Yeah. And so I think as soon as the first retailer exposes visibility directly to consumers and is willing to show their chain of custody and prove it's going to be a race to implement that feature everywhere. And it's going to become table stakes as soon as one person makes that leap. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, I think you're right. And actually, we got a shout out in the Wall Street Journal. Um, there was uh, one of their uh, excellent sustainability reporters based in London did a thing about in the EU, uh, you have to, there's a law that where you have to prove that your uh, product, uh, the provenance did not impact um, like clear cutting. You don't want to have beef that was raised on land that was uh, basically a result of cutting down the Amazon even more than it's been cut down. So um, I see that one for sure. So I, I guess inevitably, um, th these are challenging uh, problems, big rewards in getting it right, uh, uh, competitive penalties if you don't. Um, how is Ambient IoT uh, different to the other sources? This is a question that I get. Uh, a lot, you know, people are like, well, we've got QR codes, we've got RFID, we've got cameras. Um, why, why does, why does uh, a uh, computer the size of a postage stamp, uh, why is it worth uh, considering that as one of the, the tools? I, I love this question because it just, when I answer it, I always like walk away feeling like even more, uh, like I made the right choice because I really truly think we have a competitive advantage here. And every time I even say it out loud, I believe in it a little bit more. So let me actually answer your question. There's two reasons. One is first that it's passive, and then two is the infrastructure. So I've already described the labor problem everyone's facing today. You just can't add another scan. Like I know that sounds so simple, but people are like, just scan everything when it comes in and you'll have confirmation. Like. We've done that. We did that math so many times within Walmart, and the number works out to be so much bigger than you think that it actually is. And then above and beyond that, you're you're inaccurate. Like anytime you introduce a human activity, there is error incorporated with it. So any solution that we actually put out there, because we're trying to just solve these problems on the margin, it has to be reliable and it has to be passive. And we are passive and we are reliable. And so that's the, the first answer. Expand a bit more on what you mean by passive. Yeah. Uh, passive, I mean that there's no required human interaction, 
Like we yeah. apply this tag, if I'm, this is applied to bananas, anytime this thing gets energy and calibrates and transmits, I get a data point and not just one, but I get like 80. And then I clean yeah. it into uh, something usable for the customer. But I understand things about the environment and like what it's doing to the capacitance of the tag and the temperature and all these things that we can use to go build these complex models. But I don't need anyone to do anything. We just put yeah. the tag on and go. So you're not having people wandering around. You don't have to train, employ, and rely on staff with handheld scanners, which you know will work often, but not always. Uh, is is the thing? Uh, that's. I, I was sitting in a meeting with um, a, a world class retailer, and you know the thing that it's funny how all our problems are so similar. They're like we don't have time. Our employees don't have time. We just need something to just work uh, with less intervention, less things that can go wrong. And uh, I think that's something that we can all we can all relate to. Um, that's good. And anything else you want to say in terms of this uh, ambient versus uh, the alternative question? Just um, the next level down is infrastructure, because when you look at these passive technologies like computer vision and RFID and all these other things, like they are very infrastructure heavy. If you want to monitor in stock with cameras, you need cameras at a set angle looking at every single thing. Um, or you need a robot driving around and, and it leads to a whole bunch of problems because we've tried that. Um, and so the question then becomes, okay, if I'm going to have a passive solution, how do I get these signals? And the truth is that most technologies that are out there have like big, heavy, expensive, fixed infrastructure requirements and we don't. We can put up a, a little bridge that fits in the palm of my hand. Um, we can energize it from a battery if we need to. We can uh, equip it to a cart or attach it to a forklift or a pallet jack. Uh, anything that has power, we can automatically equip it to. And then suddenly you can light up all the places that merchandise would go, all the places that people would go for a fraction of the cost without having to saturate you know, a couple million square feet in a warehouse. Makes sense. And so why not use robots? Uh, robots are really cool, especially the ones that have four legs and uh, look like dogs. But. Robots are cool. I think that they are the future. I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Uh, we have some stuff to figure out. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. We can go deeper if you want to. But. Well, I'm I'm interested in one of the things that I heard you talk about. I don't want to kind of go anywhere that leaves you feeling uncomfortable. But the, the the cost of machine vision, everyone sort of thinks that machine vision is free. It's like, okay, yeah, I have to buy some cameras, but after that, it's free, isn't it? Yeah. So I can answer that question for sure. So Amazon, uh, we all think about it as a retailer, um, but Amazon has made their money over the last couple of years on AWS. It's the compute. It's not the, the books and the 17 packages we all get at our front door every day. They make their money on compute. Google, Azure, like all these places have found out that there's a ton of money in doing your computation in the cloud. And they charge you for it. And by definition, it's not free. You know, everyone's excited about ChatGPT, but if you go Google or ask ChatGPT itself how much it costs to train it, you might be shocked. Because these big models use more energy in the pre-training process than some small countries use in a year. It's a massive undertaking. And so when you think about complex computer vision models, it's not just the simple thing you're solving. You are doing a ton of compute in the cloud and there is still a marginal cost associated with it. 
So if I'm trying to predict cats versus dogs, I need a little model that only needs to do two things. If I'm trying to figure out which item I'm seeing in a Walmart, I need a big model that's looking at 100,000 things for that specific store, and I need it to work fast. And so every time I make a prediction, there's a marginal cost associated with that. And the marginal cost of that one prediction is probably in the order of magnitude of what we charge for like a month of the data coming off of our tags. And so if you're scanning millions of items a week, it becomes very expensive very quickly. And so it's not just this free thing you build once and you deploy, you're paying for every image that gets run through the machine. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk about what your team is doing because um, again, people look at Williot and they say, oh, you're a chip designer or you're a tag company, just give me the tags. Um, but it turns out, my, my reckoning, your team is close to or very soon will be the largest team within our company. And you don't have anything to do with, I mean, you use the data from the tags, but you're not designing chips, you're not designing tags. Um, and, and, you know, back in the early days when I was the first person that joined the company outside of who wasn't in R&D, and my most common request was just give me the tags I'll take the data, leave it to me. Um, what, so why do we need your team and why is, why, why is it so large? Yeah, I think the, in the data community, there's this famous joke of, uh, you know, someone in marketing will come and make a request. Like, I need all this data. And you just go to the SQL database and say, select all from this pristine table. And if it worked that way, it would be a whole lot easier and uh, our lives would all be a lot more enjoyable. But it, it doesn't work like that. I mean, these tags, if you think about what they do, they're harnessing energy from the environment across two different wavelengths, and then they're calibrating, and then they're transmitting anytime they can actually get the confidence that something's gonna hear them. And so inherently it's opportunistic and it's noisy and it's RF. So you don't know if this tag went directly to the receiver. You don't know if it bounced off of three things first. You don't know if there was a person in the way. And so it's not just a simple thing of look at the data and see where it was at there is all sorts of cleaning and processing and grouping and de-aggregation and denoising that we have to do to make the data from this raw thing into something that's actually uh, intelligible, actionable. And so there are multiple steps we have to go through to get from point A to you know point Z when someone can actually derive business value from the data. So part of what you're doing is kind of cleaning up the noise. So it's kind of a blessing and a curse. Suddenly we have real-time data, but there's a lot of data. And so it's like sifting through it. Um, so what is the, you know, what's the approach that you're taking to turn that mass of data into what customers want? And what is it that you're aiming to deliver? Yeah, absolutely. So... Again, my team has three different pieces. Uh, and so I have a research arm, I have an analyst arm, and then in the middle I have a product team. And so the research arm, these are the, the algorithm developers. These are guys from physics backgrounds who, who are brilliant and understand how to take this raw data and to denoise it and to turn it into something that's actually intelligible. And so I call that layer transition from packets to events. And so there's, there's logic in between there that takes all this raw information coming off the tag and the metadata from the bridge and the metadata from gateways and anything else and turns it into something small that we can manage. Now, the analysts take that data, the event data, and sometimes the packet data, and they'll start looking for insights that satisfy customer needs today. And so these are people on the front lines. These are people that'll go to the store and stock a shelf to understand what it looks like and what we actually need to be able to see out of the data so that we can clean it further 
and be able to actually take these raw packets, which still may be in the order of 50,000 per tag, and turn it into something that actually would trigger an action to extract business value. And then in the middle, we take those things and we try to turn them into reusable tools. So we have standardized events, but we can also group those events together through playbooks and trigger some certain actions. So maybe if um, you had an invoice and it told you what was expected and you saw items that weren't on there or went to a different store, you could trigger an action to automatically correct inventory. And that is how we have this, this tiering of raw packets to events, to playbooks, to actions, and the actions are where the business value actually happens. There is so much work that has to happen in the middle that I need this massive team to do it. And so when we give raw data to a customer and they try to replicate that on their own, it's just a massive learning curve and it's just too much. And so that's what we're, we're trying to do and make that reusable and repeatable for everyone else so they can actually go from a, a tag to an actual ROI without having to figure it all out in the middle. I sometimes joke that using this ambient IoT technology is like turning on God mode, uh, you know, if we're all in a sim simulation, which arguably we may be, uh, and suddenly you go from just seeing the bit of the game where that's around you to seeing everything. And then, you know, I think a lot of people think about, well, would I really want to be that God? Would I, I'm going to go crazy because I've just got sensory overload. There's just so much. And I think historically, IT has been about producing these post-mortem reports and a very simple set of uh, figures that some VP can look at, or maybe someone operationally can do something in a very slow way. But I think what you're describing is much more interactive. It's about operational support for the people that are doing the work, as, as well as visibility for executives. Is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Um, so what, are, what kind of, in a way, so we flip the switch we're in God mode, suddenly we can see things that no one could see before. No one, you know, before there was a temperature sensor at the end of the reef refrigerated container truck, um, you know, there was a daily scan. Um, you're trying to solve the problems that you describe, but what are the kind of surprises? What are the insights that you're seeing now that you're seeing data that really has never been seen before? I don't know if they're surprises as much as they're proof. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. that makes so it does, it does, yeah. I think we've all known this stuff was happening, but we couldn't see it. Uh, and I'm struggling to find an analogy, but you know, It'd be like trying to map a room with LIDAR versus a soccer ball. And we were kicking it against the wall. We couldn't figure out what was going on, but we couldn't see all like the ridges or details. And now we can because the data is so much more granular. And so we're seeing all the things we expected. We're seeing things that should be kept at very narrow temperature band getting way too cold or way too hot. We're seeing stuff like 20, temperature, 20 degree variations between the top of a pallet and the bottom of a pallet. And that matters a lot. We're seeing... Halloween candy get left on the back of an ambient truck and hitting 120 degrees Fahrenheit while it's in transit. And it presumably all melted, right? Um, you're seeing doors left open on coolers and freezers and, and all sorts of stuff that we always knew were happening. And, and now we can see it. And we can't stop there because it's not good enough to your point to just report the news. Like we need to be able to action it. And that's what's so nice about seeing this stuff in real time is it's not just like, hey, you had this problem a week ago. It's like, you have this problem right now, and here's exactly where it's occurring. Just go fix it. Or if it's a data problem, we can fix it passively without having to interact with anyone. 
and just rectify it. And so you don't even see it occurring. It's just all below the surface. And suddenly things are just flowing more smoothly. Very good. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And I, I want to point out that we have actually quite a few customers. So uh, I think you know, uh, you, you've been very good at not being specific about where you're seeing what problem and what opportunity and so forth. So we, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is something that's broad and uh, uh, yes. is impacting the industry rather than any one particular uh, um, vendor. You know, what are the things that you're really looking forward to? What are the problems that most excite you that can be solved with ambient IoT? The things that get me excited, like I think that all the stuff around inventory management, food safety, and, and the things I've listed will be the next two years of business. I think it will be great and we'll build a lot of business value for big enterprise customers. That's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, one, I think we have an opportunity to really impact ESG, like actually measure it and actually give people the ability to action on it where it actually occurs. And it's not just going to be this this broad swath or purchasing carbon offsets at the ton level, like you'll be able to differentiate the amount of carbon created by one apple versus another based on the methods taken by that farmer. And so that's exciting. Beyond that, I think that the ability to do some really advanced things, like um, we have experimented with the different like uh, chemicals that could sense gases as they were emitted and measure the impact of capacitance on the actual tag some of that stuff gets me really excited as you think again about emissions or or even detecting things like um, biome outbreaks. Like imagine if we had sensors everywhere that the capacitance changed as COVID was in the area. That would have been a game changer. We could have put up a billion tags and, and actually seen in real time where the virus was at like this microscopic level. I know that sounds like science fiction and today it is, but the technology exists that I think that we can get there in 10 years. And that's the stuff that gets me really excited. So I see the next two years as being these supply chain, these retail use cases. Beyond that, I think things will expand. I think we'll get into things like you know agriculture and actually be able to start measuring like if we're overwatering um, or ESG and, and really hopefully start showing some of those insights directly to consumers. Because I think when we empower people to make more responsible choices, uh, it'll actually start moving the needle and putting pressure on retailers to to make better decisions. And then beyond that, those, those next five years, I think when stuff's going to get really interesting, that's, that's what I'm excited for. I'm, I'm really interested and, and glad to hear what excites you because those are exactly the same things that excite me. I, uh, I feel like um, we're, especially the climate stuff, um, uh, I'm excited on two fronts. You know, one is I see, whilst it's great that we're now getting to everyone having to do an annual report, if you and I got a cancer diagnosis, an annual report would be not something we would settle for. If this is a serious problem, we need to manage our businesses. And I really feel like carbon equals cost. And it, this can be the, the next six sigma that the world's best companies manage to. And the thing that really makes me excited and optimistic is this isn't just about people being virtuous or take, playing the long game and helping to solve one of the world's biggest problems. It's actually ways that companies will differentiate, make more profit. Uh, and, and also, I want to have those strawberries that taste so good and you know something that will actually impact people and make people happier as well as uh, solving some of these terrible problems. So... Thaddeus, were you expecting to 
be doing what you're doing now when you were wrapping up your philosophy degree? Was it, 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 you studied philosophy, right? I did. I did uh, philosophy and economics. Uh, it's a long story how I ended up there. I was actually supposed to do engineering physics. Uh, didn't get into my top school. And then out of spite, went to my safety school and went undeclared. And uh, then found philosophy, you know, freshman year, undergrad, and loved it and started doing that, but realized it probably wasn't a safe career path. And then added in economics uh, for a little bit of safety, um, but still, you know, went down the philosophy path as much as I could and still got a degree in that as well. Pretty but cool. to answer your question, not at all, not one bit. I don't think IoT <laughs> was a term back then, um, but I'm happy that I ended up here. Very good. So how did you get here? What was your, what's your career path been? Yeah. So, I mean, we should say you're VP of, uh, well, what is your title? What's your? So I'm the VP of data products and algorithms here at Williot, and I'm pretty much responsible for taking the data that comes off the tag and turning it into a product that's actually usable for the customers and drives business value. So that is my role. In terms of how I got here, it wasn't a traditional path. Um, I came out of undergrad in 2009 during the height of the recession and um, wound up in retail doing project management and climbed the ladder. I ended up at Walmart and by 25, I was leading teams of 300 people. By 27, I was leading teams of 500. And by 29, I knew I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I pivoted over to product management, uh, working on automation and robotics. Realized I had major gaps there. So I went back to school and studied machine learning at Berkeley and um, pivoted over to work on emerging technology with startups. And that led me to a role in supply chain modernization where I met Williot. And after having met a hundred startups and peeking under the curtains, uh, I got a different vibe from Williot immediately. Like it was really defensible. It had like an unlimited top end. And so I wanted to be part of it. And that's the whole story of how I ended up here. Well, I'm really glad you did. Um, you know, I don't know if, you, if you've um, watched any of our podcasts before, but um, we have this tradition of asking people about their musical tastes, not because it's got anything to do with IoT, but I'm just interested. Uh, do you, are, there a, uh, are there three songs that you can bring to mind that are like favorites that have some significance to you? So I have watched the podcast, and this question actually stressed me out the most. <laughs> so uh, when I first joined the company, I watched many of your podcasts, and I was like, I hope I never have to do this because of the songs question. Um, <laughs> So in my defense, most of the music I listen to is only at the gym, um, but I went way back in my memory and tried to think of songs that do have meaning. And I grew up as a, as a huge Eminem fan and oh. I followed his career over the years and he's you know 50 years old and still putting out music now. Um, but there was a song in 2002 called Till I Collapse, uh, which is a famous song about you know, just like pushing through. And I think that resonated with me back then because I had a tendency to think I could just run through walls. Uh, and learned at some point in my career that that wasn't possible and you can't just work 100 hours a week uh, mm -hmm. for forever. And then uh, he has another song called Going Through Changes, which I think at the time was like 2010. And that resonated with me a lot as well because I had to reframe my mindset. Uh, and it took me some time, you know, after I pivoted out of like uh, tactical project management into like technology to really find my groove. And so he has another song called I'm Back. And I felt like uh, that was like the full culmination of the cycle. So those are my uh, three songs for you. Uh, and I'm glad to have that out of the way so we could, <laughs> we could move on. Yeah, no, that's, uh, 
Well, you've definitely broken some new ground. First time that uh, anyone has chosen three songs from the same artist, and the first time anyone's chosen uh, Eminem. So, uh, congratulations! You're uh, truly an innovator there, and uh, I love the, uh, the the story that goes with it. Um, well, it's been it's been great talking to you, Thaddeus. Um, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for, for listening in. Thanks so much for staying at the end. And uh, if you find this useful, let us know. Please rate, review us, um, share it with your friends. And uh, feel free to uh, give us some uh, feedback on whatever the platform is that you uh, use. Or you can go to the Mr. Beacon website or the Williot website and let us know if there are things that you want us to uh uh, drill into and help with uh, in terms of shining a light and getting other guests on but uh, if you have been thanks for listening and see you next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.